Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. So this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, especially around this time of year. And I've been through a lot of pretty serious life changes lately. And it's kindness. And I've learned that kindness is one of my most valued traits. Mm-hmm. I that's, I think that's why I connect so strongly to the media that I do. And I, it's really funny because right after my dad died, um, I... For some reason, I wanted to watch How to Train Your Dragon. Yes, you did. The whole series, like over and over. And in the second one, spoiler alert, the dad dies. Mm-hmm. And people were shocked. They were like, why well, are you, you watching this? And what made me start crying, not that, is that I was like, look how kind Hiccup is. And I started <laughs> crying. And it's just stuck with me. And and Knives Out um, is a movie that I love right now. And one of the things I love about that movie, that entire movie is a murder mystery about kindness. Yeah. Where kindness is at the heart of it. And so um, it's just as we close out this decade and move into a new decade, uh, thinking about the value of kindness. And you never know how much impact being kind to someone else Mm -hmm. has because it really, so many things people do, I'm sure they have no idea how much it meant to me. Right. But it did. So... In the words of Michelle McNamara, the world is chaos, be kind. And that just really is something that I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to. And I I I appreciate so many of you listeners because you are so kind when you contact us. And it, it really, really, really means so much. So please enjoy this classic episode on why are humans helpful. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And I'm about to start things off with a statement that might um, cause outrage from our more science-minded and very knowledgeable listeners. I'm nervous. Out there. Yeah, because we've got, we've, we have a number of whip smart scientists Mm -hmm. who listen in so i'm just gonna go ahead and say this from my layman's perspective okay so scientists out there keep in mind i'm just trying to cleverly possibly tee up this episode about the evolution of cooperation so what i was gonna say was that really if we are thinking of this podcast universe that we magically live in and in evolutionary terms Mm -hmm. You and I really shouldn't be sitting at the same table, Caroline. Why? Because we should probably have separate podcasts, you know, because of survival of the fittest and everything. Like, humans are naturally selfish, right? Inherently selfish creatures. So I would really want to start the Kristen show (laughs) so I could battle it out on the charts. Right. And the Caroline hour. <laughs> oh, an hour. That's right. Kristen's limiting me. I really would talk for an hour. <laughs> Maybe we should do it. Um, but as a matter of fact, it sort of does make sense that we are sitting across the table, talking, cooperating. Yeah. We're helping each other get ahead. Mm-hmm. Together, we are getting farther than possibly we would 
separately. Although, you know, the theory behind cooperation and defecting, yes. not helping other people, being selfish and acting in one's own self-interest, is that, you know, as a defector, theoretically, you would, you would get ahead. Mm-hmm. Because you're not you're not helping your neighbor, so you're not uh, doling out anything. You're not incurring any costs. But then your neighbor doesn't get anything from you, doesn't get any help, so she won't get ahead. Right. So, but if you both help each other, then you both get ahead. And since we like talking about success stories, and this mm-hmm. is just maybe the grand <laughs> success story of the human species, is perhaps. Cooperation, because scientists would refer to us as super cooperators, because without cooperation, we wouldn't even be able to sit here because we wouldn't have this technology. We wouldn't have language. No. Thumbs. <laughs> what would thumbs we do without thumbs? Just sort of bat things around like cats, <laughs> I guess. Um, but the whole idea behind this is that cooperation is a driving force in evolution. And Martin Nowak, who uh, is from Harvard University, in 2006 wrote that the emergence of genomes, cells, multicellular organisms, social insects, and human society as a whole are all based on cooperation. Right, which is counterintuitive because uh, I made the reference to evolution earlier because the theory is based on competition and the idea of rewarding selfish behavior. Mm -hmm. But when you actually look at biological organization, you find so much cooperation and self-sacrifice in a lot of instances. Yeah, and and I know you might be thinking this sounds way more sciencey than we normally get, but don't worry, don't worry. We'll get to the gender stuff. We yeah. are reliable. Yeah, we are cooperating in this. We bring it around to gender every time. Right, but yeah, cooperation essentially means that selfish replicators, you know, they're looking out for themselves. They forego some of their reproductive potential to help one another. So, like I said earlier. Everybody gets ahead. Everybody wins. And Nowak, who you mentioned from Harvard University, um, established a theory of five mechanisms for the evolution of cooperation, how all of this works. And the first one makes a lot of sense, and that is kin selection. We want to perpetuate our, our genes, and so naturally we are more willing to cooperate with people that we are related to. And the closer they're related to us, then the more likely we are to lend a helping hand. Right, and that's the whole theory behind that is we share more genes, obviously, with people we're more closely related to. So there's the whole saying of, I will jump in the river to save two brothers or eight cousins. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the idea behind that. Um, There's also network reciprocity, which is formed in a mixed population of cooperators and defectors. Uh, Cooperators are busy helping each other and forming network clusters, while defectors are getting left out because they're not benefiting their neighbors at all. And then those clusters of cooperators end up out-competing the defectors because, like we said, they're pushing each other ahead to succeed. And then we have group selection, um, which maintains that competition is not only between individuals, but also between groups. And a group of cooperators will, not so surprisingly, grow faster than a group of defectors because they can actually work together. And this is something that will also come up in uh, later research on like teamwork and sports um, that it's also come up. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you guys might have heard of, possibly, is the prisoner's dilemma, which is a test and activity that's been reproduced in several studies. And that's known as uh, direct reciprocity. Basically, if I cooperate now, you might cooperate later. Tit for tat. Uh, you owe me, I owe you. Um, and this relies basically on repeated encounters between the same two individuals and 
It's basically, to quote the study, like a barter economy based on the immediate exchange of goods. So first, let's outline uh, quickly what the prisoner's dilemma is, just because this comes up so often in this line of scientific literature. Yeah. So if Kristen and I are both suspects who've been arrested uh, on suspicion of a crime, uh, they separate us and, you know, good cop, bad cop, and they're just like beating us down mentally, trying to get one of us to confess or both. The theory goes, and tests have shown, that when one of the suspects confesses, so like let's say Kristen confesses to the crime, like mm-hmm. she did it or we did it or I did it or whatever, I she did con- it. she confesses, but I don't, then she's the one who's cooperating. She receives preferential treatment, favorable treatment. So she might not go to prison or might not go to prison for as long because she cooperated. Right. When both of us confess, the outcome is worse because it's like, well... You've lost your leverage. And even though we both cooperated, we're both like super guilty. So we, we do not get favorable treatment, either one of us. When both of us keep silent, though, we're cooperating with each other. We haven't offered up any information. Neither one of us goes to prison and gets shanked or shivved or has shoved. To, has or shoved. Uh, and so the outcome is better for both of us. We might both end up going to prison for a little while. But we didn't confess. We cooperated with each other. So the outcome ends up, although it's not the best for one of us, Mm -hmm. it's the better for both of us. Yeah, so it's a roll of the dice in this prisoner's dilemma game that these researchers will often play with participants to see how selfish we are, whether or not we will go for the more cooperative option and just hope for the best that the other person in the game is also thinking cooperatively. Right. Um, but it's it's interesting how to, to see how those kinds of games shake out. And again, this will come up when we talk more about gender. And let's briefly touch on that fifth mechanism, which is indirect reciprocity, which is fueled by reputation. It's essentially the idea of doing something in order to burnish your reputation in case of a rainy day, kind of. Yeah, basically you help somebody. And you don't necessarily expect immediate help, but you do expect other people to take note, possibly inform others. And based on your now sterling reputation, you expect down the line to get some perks. And uh, the study shows that this is a very human attribute, this idea of indirect reciprocity, because we have to have the ability to actually like remember, keep track of our social network, remember who's done what, who's benefited whom, and kind of keep tallies of, you know, who's, who's helping each other. Yeah. And that whole idea of the social network dynamics um, has received some more insight from a 2011 study out of Harvard University, which found that, um, when it comes to cooperation and helpfulness within the social networks, everything is constant and changing in response to those networks, the people in those networks' behaviors. Yeah. When we have, when you have a dynamic uh, social network, basically you get to choose the people that you want to keep hanging out with, the people who give you the greatest benefits, who you like the best. Um, you end up with big groups of cooperators. Because nobody wants to hang out with the selfish guy. Yeah, and the sweet little moral of this scientific story is that nice guys can finish first because you won't. You're a co-op cooperator. <laughs> exactly. Hooray. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so these dynamic groups where you can pick and choose who you hang out with end up having very high level levels of cooperation because you're rewarded for cooperating by getting to hang out with the cool kids. If you're the selfish guy who's not cooperating 
then you typically end up getting shunned. And so you learn from that mistake. You learn from the little sting of being shunned. So then you try to cooperate, whether it's heartfelt or not. You want to be part of the group. So it keeps us in, it keeps us in check as well, our behaviors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your reputation and social networks and basically thinking that people are watching you. Now, there's something that comes up a lot in this podcast that's going to put a wrinkle in our cooperative or non-cooperative behavior, and that would be hormones. Ooh. Yes. There is uh, known evidence that the hormone oxytocin, the cuddly-feely hormone released in the female brain, especially during an orgasm that promotes bonding, a little boost of oxytocin will make us more cooperative. Mm-hmm. Studies have shown that a boost of oxytocin in our brain will make us more cooperative, which makes sense, you know, if you think about all of the different traits that are associated with oxytocin. Now, on the flip side of that, a study published in January of 2012 from the University College London's Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging <sighs> found that testosterone, yep, testosterone makes us less cooperative. Yeah, it kind of blinds you to other people's point of view. It makes you overvalue your own opinions at the expense of cooperating. And so they did this study. They had 17 pairs of female volunteers working together. And they did, they had a little asterisk. And they said that, you know, we did 17 pairs of female volunteers because testosterone levels naturally low. Mm -hmm. And so they could uh, have some of the women take a pill or whatever to raise their testosterone levels. Whereas if they did that in men, when you raise an already high testosterone level, it backfires and makes them, I don't know, weepy or something. Um, But so they had these pairs of female volunteers working together. And when given a placebo, the pairs cooperated well, performed their assigned tasks better. But when they were given a testosterone supplement, the benefit of cooperation was reduced. Individuals acted egocentrically, and they tended to decide in favor of their own ideas over those of their partner. <laughs> so watch out for that. Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Nick Wright, who was the lead researcher, said, Too much cooperation, and we may never have our way, but if we're too self-motivated, we are likely to ignore people who have real insights. So there is a balance to cooperation. I mean, if you're constantly rolling over for someone else, well, good grief, don't yeah. do that. But then you can't be too hard-headed either. Well, so does this mean that men and women are inherently different as far as how they cooperate? Is there a huge difference there? Well, I think that's the question we're going to answer next in this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Because you would assume, based on that uh, study that we just cited about testosterone, we know that men tend to have higher levels of testosterone running through their bloodstream. Uh, So you might think, well, sure, uh, guys aren't going to be as cooperative as women. And women are just, you know, sweet little pancakes of helpfulness. I don't know why pancakes, but you know. Fluffy? They're fluffy. and You can put <laughs> butter. I don't know. Um, but yeah, keep going. And there is some support for something called the male warrior hypothesis. Yeah, and that's basically that men's social behavior and psychology are more strongly intergroup driven than women's. And there's all this stuff about like, you know, evolutionary theory and men hunting the wildebeest and everything and taking it home to their women. But... Basically, uh, researchers from the universities of Kent in England and Tilburg, I believe in the Netherlands in 2007, found that men contributed more to their group if the group was competing against other groups. 
So that's that that can lead us later into a bunch of like sports theory and and team theory and stuff like that. But uh, they they found that female cooperation was pretty much unaffected by intergroup competition. Yeah, and there was a September uh, 2011 study published by the American Psychological Association that looked at 50 years of research because there are a ton of studies examining gender and helpfulness and cooperation. And they found that men are more cooperative, kind of like you just said, particularly when the interests of an individual are pitted against those of a group. Um, And men cooperate with other men. This was interesting. Better than women cooperate with other women. We should really not be getting along very well right now. I know. Competition and we're two women. (laughs) Um, And women will cooperate more than men in mixed sex interactions. So basically everybody cooperates with men better. Is what it sounds sounds like. And, you know, I touched on evolutionary theory a second ago, but uh, if they basically say that if everyone acted according to self-interest in hunting and warfare back in the day with the wildebeest and the mastodons, uh, no food would be provided and all wars would be lost because everybody would be looking out for themselves. Like, I don't want to get hurt. I'm just going to kill this wildebeest for my woman or myself, not for the rest of you guys. And so basically men had to develop strategies to cooperate with each other. Meanwhile, the theory behind women's interaction and cooperation, according to the study's lead author, is that ancestral women migrated between groups, you know, as wives are wont to do, and, quote, so the dynamics among women would have been rife with sexual competition. Ah, uh, stereotypes about catty women. Going back <laughs> it goes to all the way back. Back to evolutionary times. Uh, But before I get too bummed out about that, Dr. Art Markman, uh, who's the executive editor of Cognitive Science, um, looked at some meta-analysis on all this because, yes, we see some gender differences here and there depending on group versus individual versus who's sitting across the table from you versus whether or not you're being in an environment that's being monitored. And he found that... Despite stereotypes, the gender differences when it comes to cooperation is very small. It's almost statistically insignificant. And he says, while it does affect how, pe- how likely people are to cooperate to some degree, it is not the most important factor. Yeah, it's definitely fostering team unity and trust that helps people cooperate, feel comfortable working together rather than focusing on a gender balance. So, I mean, you shouldn't try to get, you know, a room full of men or make sure you have an exact balance of men and women necessarily. Just make sure that the people you hire, you know, you're fostering that team unity feeling. Mm -hmm. Although it is interesting to see what does happen when, uh, say, we're in the room, our studio by ourselves, having to cooperate away from the prying eyes of all of our listeners. But if our, you know, when we could, we could stop and, you know, not be so cooperative with each other. But chances are when you're being watched or monitored by some kind of an audience, then, and your reputation is kind of more on the line, Mm -hmm. it does change how men and women will interact. It does. And this is a study from UC Santa Barbara. And they had men and women playing a game in front of an audience of the same or opposite sex, either in their homeroom or in an away room. And so the theory is that while both males and females wish to gain approval of their in-group members, in other words, the people in their homeroom, the actions that are socially desirable differ across gender. So males wish to signal that they're formidable, 
while females wish to signal that they're cooperative. So it has a lot to do, not so much with your gender, Mm -hmm. a little bit. Basically, we cooperate the same amount, but we cooperate kind of differently. So men cooperate less, quote unquote, at home, in their homeroom, than do females and cooperate more when away. And they actually cooperate most when in front of a single sex audience. Oh. Um, well, I, th- I thought it was interesting that this uh, that, that study from UC Santa Barbara also supports um, a, a, date, a little bit dated 1988 study in the Social Psychology Quarterly that found that, uh, again, there was a minor gender difference in cooperation. But no matter what side women came out on, whether or not they were being more cooperative, cooperative excuse me, or um, defectors, we tend to assume that we have the moral high ground. Yeah. Like, we, yeah, we think we're more cooperative and altruistic and all that stuff. And that, that actually reminded me of our um, Women's Intuition podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think in your brain that you're supposed to be a certain way, you just assume that your actions are more that way than somebody else's, kind of. Yeah. Well, and also, we tend to not get as, even this is all in experimental settings, but not to get as emotionally worked up about having to hash something out with someone else. Often the the men were more likely to leave um, one of these prisoner's dilemma-esque games, very agitated and upset, whereas women were like, it's fine. I mean, I was being as altruistic as I could possibly be. So, Fluffy pancakes of cooperation for everyone. Um, Now, we said we'd get into a little bit of sports theory, and by that I mean just a little itty-bitty bit. Um, But uh, a 2004 study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology had a behavioral task assigned to these people that involved shooting a basketball. And in this intergroup competition, which is a combination of cooperation and competition, it led to higher levels of intrinsic motivation, which we already kind of talked about where men were more likely to cooperate if they were going up against a, a group. So basically, intergroup competition has positive effects on enjoyment of the sport. And so they recommend, the study recommends structuring recreational activities to include both competition and cooperation because that can facilitate high levels of both intrinsic motivation and performance. I don't think it applies to me because I hate competition, but whatever. But that's probably why, I mean, we join up with rec sports teams because it mm-hmm. is fun. I mean, the, the competition level is there enough that it's stimulating, but then you also get the whole cooperative benefits you get to bond you get to bond you get to do the the all hands in high five cheer thing and pour uh big tubs of sports drinks on people yeah i've never done that i should do that to you sometime (laughs) short circuit our (laughs) equipment um and this whole competitive structure versus cooperative structure translates not so surprisingly into the workplace. And it is interesting to see how they compare in terms of outcome because a study published in 2003 in the Academy of Management Journal found that competitive structures enhance speed and a cooperative one enhances accuracy. Yeah, and it makes sense if you think about it because mm-hmm. if you're competing again, if, if, if Kristen and I had different podcasts and we're recording at the same time and that's somehow how the universe worked, that we had to see who could record the best, the best podcast the fastest. 
we we would probably be focused, yeah, more on who would do it the fastest. Because so you would have the Caroline Hour, like you said. Maybe I'd have the Conger Minute. The Conger Minute. Just, get, just pump those podcasts out. <laughs> yeah, but um, the cooperative environment uh, is really good for teams with extroverted and agreeable members. Uh, teams low on these attributes function better under a competitive structure, which I thought was interesting. So I guess if you're extroverted, friendly, you're more likely to want to talk about stuff with your coworkers to reach a solution. So I wonder if someone who swings a little more introverted like myself, does that mean? See, I don't know. I was I was thinking about that too because you don't typically see introverted people like being really cutthroat in the workplace. But they do work more independently. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that whole competitive system is really good for people who do work independently because it emphasizes performance differences and it rewards individuals with high performance. So it can actually, the good on the good, the good side, it can promote efficiency. On the bad side, it can lead individuals to place their goals higher than those of the organization. Yeah, and then there's the whole challenge with a cooperative system that works well, like you said, with people who are extroverted and agreeable, because if you put them in more of a competitive reward structure, uh, at least according to this study, they made twice as many mistakes. So they're rushing around being like, but I want to talk to you about it. Ah." So essentially, we need some kind of balance between it all. Yeah. You know, we can't be too competitive. We can't be too cooperative. We got to get things done. Essentially, we all... Listen, everybody just be perfect. <laughs> no pressure. That? No pressure at all. You know, keep those oxyto- <laughs> oxytocin levels high, but not too high. Yeah, not too high. We don't want to be hugging all the time. Yeah, but then with testosterone, you know, yeah, low, but not too low. So I do want to ask our listeners, you know, do they consider themselves to be more cooperators or quote unquote defectors? Mm -hmm. Are you more likely to feel like you're getting ahead if you're working closely with other people? Do you like helping others? Do you ever feel like you're helping others at the expense of your own success? And was anyone surprised by the lack of gender difference in cooperation? Yeah, because a lot of people stereotypically, you know, anecdotally, people think that women are inherently more cooperative. Not necessarily true. Yeah, but that might be used as a misuse as an adjective for subservient. Mm-hmm. I digress. <laughs> so send us an email. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send them. Okay, this is uh, an email from Claire about our Kathy episode. Uh, she says, I'm a 14-year-old enthusiast of comic books and Liz Lemon. Woo, go Claire! And read plenty of both Garfield and Kathy comics in my childhood. I wasn't aware of the feminist backlash against Kathy until your podcast, and frankly, I disagree with it. Not only do I think she shouldn't be held to a standard that other comics are not held to, but if being a prominent woman cartoonist means that she has to uphold some responsibility of progressing women and having some sort of big, meaningful character arc when Garfield has only gotten fatter and John lonelier, are the two genders in the media truly equal? I appreciate feminism and think anyone's involvement in it is a fantastic thing to do, but to assign someone a role like that for something as, to be blunt, mediocre, as a newspaper comic strip, I think is over the top. 
Well, I have one here from Madison, and it is in response to our episode about erotica, in which we mentioned uh, BDSM themes in erotic literature. And she writes, I'm a confident woman who incorporates BDSM into my sex life. I don't think safe, sane, consensual, kinky sex among adults is damaging to women. Men can be subs, too. If getting tied up and stuff is really hot to you, then find someone else who's into it. I appreciate that you guys acknowledge the difference between actual violence and consensual violent play of BDSM. The key word here is that BDSM is play. Dan Savage, love him, describes sex role play as cops and robbers for adults with your pants off and orgasms. (laughs) So true. One of my problems with Fifty Shades is that it paints a picture that only screwed up broken people participate in BDSM. Screwed up broken people participate in vanilla relationships too. Emotional and physical abuse is never okay, especially in the kink community. The last thing we need on the news is evil kinky people do something sex-crazed and evil. It's <laughs> a great headline. I know. Most kinksters I know are extremely polite and will only whip you if you ask nicely while you're sober. The bottom really controls what's happening to them since nothing else happens without their permission. And I, on a side note, am blushing. <laughs> So thank you to Madison for that insight on the BDSM community and to everyone who has written in. We have gotten a lot of email about our erotica episode. So much, in fact, I haven't even gotten around to reading it all. So that and more for the next episode. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Podcast. And you can head over to our website during the week to see what we're up to. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 